welcome all. I am Scott McLeod. I make comics mostly about comics and uh, some fiction like Sot and the Sculptor. And to my left is Kurt Busick, the author of Astro City and Marvels, Thunderbolts, Aerosmith, Superman, Secret Identity, JLA Avengers, tons of other awesome comics. And uh, we are here to talk about the fact that we have known each other now for far too many years. I didn't even bother to count this, count how many years before we started. We met in 1972. So do the math. Long, long time. September and, 1972. And the fact that this, this man, quite literally, he is responsible. I, I read you my credits and his credits. Well, he can claim all of those credits because... I did it. It is very, very plausible that I would have never made comics without Kurt Busiek forcing me to read comics in middle school because it was not easy to get me interested in comics. No, it was not. <laughs> um, Scott did not read comics as a child. Um, Scott did not read comics as a, as, a, as a teenager until I started reading comics at age 14 for reasons that passeth understanding. Um, and, and I wanted somebody to talk to about the comics. And so I loaned Scott a run of X-Men from issue, about issue 8 yep. through 66. And they sat uh, in a bookshelf in his room for, it, little, feels little like, it feels like a very long time, but since the first comic I bought and the first comic you bought are separated in publication time by six months, <laughs> it's, it's less time than I, than I thought. It also means that I put together a, a, a run of X-Men really fast. Yeah. Um, because uh, because it, it did it did take a while. You but didn't have one through seven, is that right? No, uh. no. I think I had might have had three. Yeah. But but it was about starting with about eight that I I had them from that point on. Um, that you know uh, before issue eight they got to be expensive. They were like two dollars. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know issue one, geez, that must have probably been around $20, $25 back then. <laughs> that was big money, man. Yeah, you got to remember something about when we started reading comics. First of all, we're like 13, 14 years old. We're in middle school. We're total classic nerds. We're like quoting Monty Python to each other. We're, you know, like even older stuff like the Goon Show. And I want to play chess all the time. And I'm the only thinking about chess. So like it's typical geeky kids in middle school. Um, and of course we fell in love with comics, but, but I, he had to really work to get me into them. And when he finally did, I just fell hard and that was it. We were going to make comics together. But the time for comics, the mid seventies, it was a rough time. This was just leading up to the new X-Men and it was just, I mean, like talk about like what was left of comics at that point, this dying art form. <laughs> it looked really bleak. Well... You know, I liked it. <laughs> um, you know, I was I was fascinated by the interconnectedness of everything. I was I was reading almost entirely Marvel comics, and the thing that hooked me really hard into into uh, uh, into the first you know the first comic I read that I still own was Daredevil 120, and it's part one of a four part story where Daredevil and the Black Widow go up against Hydra. Um, and there were three things, I think it was three things, 
there was, I mean, you know, it was a it was a Daredevil adventure, and I got to like Daredevil. Um, but early on, there was a comment that uh, uh, the the Black Widow made about going to a New Year's Eve party at Foggy Nelson's place. About uh, Foggy Nelson was the man who put her on trial for the crime of being a Russian. And there's a little asterisk and a caption that says Daredevil '83. And I went, this came out like <laughs> five years ago, and it still matters. He did not, in fact, put her on, the, on trial for the crime of being a Russian. It was murder. Um, uh, so as, as DAs go, he was a little bit more sensible. But, uh, but not only that, it, uh, the setup with Hydra was they had all of these Hydra section chiefs who were already pre-established supervillains, except for the one new one who showed up that issue. Um, and they all showed up, you know, this character first appeared in Marvel Team-Up, and this character first appeared in an issue of Strange Tales, and, this, and, I was, and I was, it was just stunning to me, because I'd go to the library, and I'd pick books based on, there are a lot of them by this author, and they look like a series. So if I read one and I like it, I can find out what happens next. But here was a world where clearly, not only could I find out what happens next, but there was this other series that, you know, this was before Nancy Drew had ever met the Hardy Boys. So it was like that discovery. Wait a minute, Nancy Drew can team up with the Hardy Boys and the Bobsy Twins? <laughs> and, you know, G8 and his aviator aces? That, that it just kept going, kept going bigger and wider. There was even a, a, instead of a letter column in that issue of Daredevil, there was a history of Hydra. And that was continued next issue. So everything was continued, everything was connected, everything. It was like crack for 13-year-old yeah. Kurt Busiek. And, and this wasn't just like, you didn't just enjoy this as a consumer because you actually became a person who would make this happen magically a couple of different times. I mean, you did JLA Avengers. Mm -hmm. um, but even before that, you, you and I were involved in the nuttiest thing imaginable, which I, was either the first or the second actual Marvel second, DC crossover second. at the age of, what were we, 16? Uh, I was, I think, yeah, I think we were 16. Yeah, this is called Pow Biff Pops. It was drawn by a friend of ours, but Kurt wrote it. I did some layouts, and it was projected on the wall of Boston Symphony Orchestra. Literally, just the setup for this, we did something because we did not know it was impossible. Yeah. It, was like, it was like the Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote, except we didn't know enough to look down. Um, that, that our friend Chris Bing, who lived two doors down from Scott, yeah. um, his mother was on the Boston Pops Junior Committee, which is a fundraising committee, and their concert, their opening fundraising concert that year was going to be Comic Heroes Night. So they were going to play the Batman theme, and they were going to play the Lone Ranger theme, and, and, and I don't know, Green Hornet, Superman, uh, whatever, if, uh, if it involved a, a mask, a quest for justice, and a theme song, um, <laughs> then, uh, then, then that's, that's what it was going to be. And Chris suggested to his mother, why don't we do a comic book that we can sell as part of the fundraising thing? Because he, he wanted to do a comic book. Um, he's the guy who... You know, after we were both reading you know, Marvel and DC comics, he showed us uh, the Bad Furry Freak Brothers, 
Yeah. And uh, the balloon vendor and Meef and Undergrounds and 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 uh, and Warren Comics, I think. Um, yeah. uh, so so which he was, which was an important moment where my eyes started to drift elsewhere and my career kind of began to wander off. And I, you know, like soon I would lose some of my connection with superheroes. Yeah, yeah. It's like, what else can comics do? Which is a question Scott has been asking ever since. It comes up a lot. But, um, uh, but so, so she said, okay, what would you do? And we came up with, well, let's have four, you know, Superman, Batman, Robin, Wonder Woman, uh, Spider-Man, Captain America... Namor and the Human Torch, because I was reading Invaders, um, and we were doing uh, and, it in, in our own comics anyway. We were mixing the superheroes, and and they, you know, they'll come together to do some sort of story happening about the Boston Pops, and the Boston Pops organization contacted Marvel and DC and said, "Can we do this?" They didn't say, "We have a couple of sixteen-year-old nerds." <laughs> Who want to do this? They said, can we do this as a fundraiser? And Marvel and DC both said, well, it's the Boston Pops. Okay. (laughs) But there were rules. We could only publish 150 of these things, and any that weren't sold that night would have to be destroyed. It was only 150. I thought it was more like a... Thousander. No, it's 150. Oh my God! They're and unsold copies. I love that. Say it again. Had to be destroyed. They were burned. I believe they were actually I, burned. I do not have any knowledge of how they were burned. <laughs> I just the know ultimate that collector's item. That, yeah. that that we did not, in fact, destroy all of them because uh, I kept a couple, and uh, my mom has one or had one, um, uh, and and uh, I believe you know your family had a few. Yeah, I have one somewhere. Um, but uh, but so we, we we did this comic that was written by me, laid out by Scott, drawn by Chris Bing, lettered by uh, Richard Howell, who was a guy we knew who worked at the local comic book store and did his own small press comics. Um, and uh, the only one of those four people who did not go on into the into the comics industry was was Chris Bing, the guy who started the whole thing. Um, And uh, he's a Caldecott Honor Medal winning uh, children's book illustrator. So, uh, you know, Scott is Scott, I'm me. Richard Howell drew Vision, Scarlet Witch, and Hawkman for Marvel and uh, published Elvira comics for years and was the guy who uh, was behind the revival of Vampirella. And, you know, so everybody went on to do stuff. Um, uh, And, you know, when we were breaking into comics, it was no help whatsoever that we had done the second official Marvel DC crossover. I don't know if I even showed that when I was applying for work at DC. But but at that night, you know, the night that they had the concert and they showed the the, uh, thing on the screen uh, during intermission... Uh, nobody from Marvel came up. Saul Harrison came up from D.C., yep. sat at our table and wouldn't talk to us. <laughs> so it was, it, it was a fun experience. <laughs> but, you know, you had, the, you had this faith that everything is connected and you actually followed up on it. And we also, both of us, I think we had a lot of, we had a preposterous amount of confidence. And a lot of, a lot of kids coming up and, and, like, learning to make comics, you know, they're all alone, you know, in, in, in some town where there's nobody else who, who's interested in it or not. This was before the internet. We had no way of connecting with people. We connected with each other. And there was confidence just was in the air where we grew up. 
Every, it was a very, everybody, it was, you know, it was the engineers, the kids of engineers and professors and scientists, computer scientists. And I think we just never doubted that we could do this. I, I mean, I started to have doubts when I, once I had success. I don't know about you. <laughs> but, but we were super confident. And, and yes, indeed, we went to college and then we got into the industry. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you broke in? I, I, before that, I will say that Scott said earlier that, that he would not have gotten into comics if not for me. I will return the favor and say if I didn't have anybody to talk to about comics, if I didn't have anybody to make fan comics with, as Scott and I did throughout high school and even some in college, um, I would have given up. You know, I would have gone and done something else. I didn't, I, you know, we were in a feedback loop. Yeah. You know, I kept him going, he kept me going, and we wound up here. Time travelers take note. It would be very, very easy to change comics history in there. <laughs> Just make sure we don't meet. <laughs> there are, um, uh, you said breaking in. Yeah, I mean, like, I went. I knew from like midway through high school that comics was what I wanted to do for a living. I knew it was what I wanted to do for a living because I had known from very, very young age that I wanted to be a writer, and I thought that writing a novel was really intimidating. Um, you know, you had to write like 400 pages of stuff. It was going to take you like a year, and it was going to stink. Because the first time you do anything, it's going to stink. So you need the practice, you need to get better, but that's a big mountain to push a boulder up. Yeah. Comics, on the other hand, were 17 pages long at that time. And so I thought, yeah, I could do that, it could stink, and so what? It would, what would it take, a month? And so I talked this poor sap here into drawing a comic <laughs> book that I would write, and we spent the next three years doing it. Yeah. It was 60 pages long. It's terrible. Um, but by the end of it, we were a lot better than when we started, and we'd both fallen in love with the, with the medium. Um, when we were in college, we did other stuff that was aimed at a uh, sort of semi-pro magazine that was going to be published uh, out, of, out of the Boston area that never actually materialized. Um, uh, but when it came time to... You know, while I was in college, I took any course that I could think of that seemed to be useful. I took a playwriting course. I took, you know, comparative mythology, Bible as literature. Um, uh, I had gone. One of the reasons I wanted to go to Syracuse University in the first place was they actually had a creative writing degree, which they canceled the year I got there. <laughs> so they kept the illustration program. I, we both went to Syracuse. Yeah. But, uh, but. Uh, uh, there was a very, uh, very useful class on uh, magazine publishing that taught me a lot about what it's like to be on the other side of the desk that I think held me in, in good stead. But one of the things we had to do for that class was we had to interview the publisher of a mass market magazine, and mass market magazine was determined by advertising sales level. And I, thinking I was very clever, said, well, DC Comics is actually a bunch of magazines, but in terms of advertising sales, they run the same ads in all the magazines. So for circulation, they consider it one ad sale. Mm. And that circulation is at least as big as the circulation of Better Homes and Gardens. So can I call 
DC Comics, a, a, a mass market magazine, and can I interview the editor-in-chief instead of the publisher? And I thought I was, you know, being clever. The teacher of the class is just thinking, he actually wants to do something. Very <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it is we're trying to teach these kids is mostly about how to do research and think logically. So if he wants to edit, if he wants to interview an editor in chief instead of a publisher, who cares? <laughs> so I, I wound up interviewing Dick Giordano, um, uh, and uh, I went down to uh, New York Thanksgiving break, and uh, I interviewed him. Uh, and at the end of the interview, I mean, we talked about ad sales and comics publishing. And at the end of the interview, I told him basically that I wanted to be a comic book writer if I grew up. And uh, he said, well, send me some samples. Um, and I went back to school, and over spring break, I wrote 80 pages of sample DC scripts. I wrote a, uh, a Supergirl story from the era of back when she was a soap opera actress, I wrote a Superman the In-Between Years uh, backup story. I wrote a, uh, a Flash story, and I wrote a Brave and the Bold story where Batman and Green Lantern teamed up because the title of the story was Someone is Killing the Bums of Gotham City. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, I, I, was, I was writing stuff, that mostly stuff that Carrie Bates was the regular writer on, and I was doing Carrie Bates pastiches, but clearly that Brave and the Bold one was a Bob Haney pastiche, because that's a Bob Haney title. Yeah. Um, but I, I sent those in, and uh, I, after we graduated, well, before we graduated, mm -hmm. after we were done with finals, we moved down to New York City, we were looking around for an apartment, Scott had a job lined up in the DC production department already. I got a job three weeks before leaving school. It doesn't usually happen like this, by the way. And I, uh, I Dick apparently looked at my scripts and passed them on to the editors for whom they were, you know, who wrote those particular books. So he may have just looked at them and go, this isn't in crayon. You know, he didn't write it on shopping bags. But maybe he read enough of it to go, this looks like reasonably clear comic stuff. It's worth passing on. Um, I got uh, a tryout um, from Julie Schwartz on a Superboy script. One of the best moments early on in my, uh, my, my professional work-seeking career. It was not successful, but E. Nelson Bridwell read my Supergirl script and my Superman the In-Between Years script, and he said they're perfectly publishable, but... Hmm. And the but in both cases was, we've canceled that Supergirl series and are launching a new Supergirl series where she's not a soap opera actress, so we can't use this, and we've canceled the Superman the In-Between Years ser backup series outright. Um, but Julie had me write about five pages of a uh, Superboy fill-in story, and he didn't like them. So I didn't get any farther with, uh, with Julie, in part because I was too timid. And I figured, well, he has rejected me. Therefore, I am a pariah forever. We found out since that Julie rejects everyone three times. <laughs> or he used to. I mean, he's not um, with us anymore. You know, uh, I, I, for, for years it annoyed me that the editor of Brave and the Bold didn't even bother to read my script at all 
but since Brave and the Bold was canceled six months later and he was using up inventory, I can understand why it wasn't a high priority. Um, the, the flash script went to Ernie Cologne. Uh, Ernie did not need any flash scripts because Carrie Bates had been writing the book for 17 years and was going to write it for another, like, six. Um, uh, but he was also the editor of Green Lantern, so he invited me to pitch uh, Tales of the Green Lantern Corps backup stories. And I, uh, I did so. He said, write this one. Um, I wrote it. He bought it. So I made my first professional sale on the Thursday before the weekend of my actual college graduation. <laughs> So, yeah, so and as those, Scott says, it usually doesn't happen that way. Yeah, it really doesn't. It's usually not such a straight line. Of course, the industry has completely reinvented itself. And, you know, the way that we broke in, it's just... It doesn't exist yeah, anymore. Yeah, the structure is just not there anymore. Even then, it was kind of unusual to, to just have this beeline that we created. But again, that confidence... I mean, confidence is a very, it's a very valuable thing. And sometimes it's just arrogance. I think we had some of that, too, probably. Um, but, you know, I was going to ask you, like, if, if you, you know, like, are there any mistakes that you do differently now? But really, it worked. You got in the door. It was oh, just there are like, so many mistakes I would do differently. Tell, tell I would do entirely different mistakes. <laughs> what are some fun mistakes you could do now? Well, I mean, the first thing that I would do is I would not, give up so easy. I, yeah. I, you know, I didn't know Julie Schwartz rejected things the first three times. Yeah. Um, I just figured he rejected things, so I kind of gave up. And I, uh, I didn't, you know, the Brave and Bold editor didn't read my script. I didn't ask, well, what else does he need? Mm -hmm. um, Ernie Cologne bought that Green Lantern story, and then the next time I was in talking to him, we had, I had been you know, right across Rockefeller Plaza from DC Comics was Books Kino Kania, which I think at the time was the fir their first or second location in the yeah. United States. Yeah, I think so. And so we were buying manga before other people were buying manga because we are cool. Um, and, and, you know, Julie was like, oh, what do you got? Not Julie Ernie. So I was showing him, you know, I like these comics. I can you know, this is so well drawn, the characterization is so clear that I, can, I can't understand what the plot plot is because when they start doing the exposition, I have no idea what they're saying. But I can understand the character relationships and I can understand the action. Um, and he said, why don't we do a Green Lantern core story like that? Oh. that? That it's all pantomime, it's all clear from the, uh, from the art. And I said, well, we could letter it in Alien. And he said, oh, that's cool. Let's do that. I had no idea how to do it. I basically, I basically wrote a, a, a Jerry Lewis as Green Lantern story, <laughs> um, which was not what he was thinking of. Yeah. Um, the artist uh, who drew it, you know, Ernie had one of the chapters inked and one of the chapters lettered. And other people around the office said it, saw it and said, what is this crap? Um, and so it was never published. And I didn't say, well, I should pitch Julie something else. Yeah. You know, I didn't say, here I am. I'm selling stuff to DC Comics. Karen Berger is editing House of Mystery. Let me pitch House of Mystery stories. Mm -hmm. You know, who else is out there? Um, what other editors are there in, you know, what I did was I sold a story to Marvel, which was not a stupid thing. Um, uh, and I ended up writing Power Man and Iron Fist for a year. But then I, I absolutely made a huge mistake. 
um, because I wasn't making all that much money, and now I had this this, this regular series where I was <laughs> I was making six hundred and sixty dollars a month. Um, uh, so I moved back home to Boston to pursue my comic book career now that I had my regular book. And a year later, I was fired from my regular book, and I had no options. I didn't stay in New York and say, I'm writing a regular book for Marvel. Let me pitch other things to other editors in the office. Let me pitch DC again. You know, Let me pitch Warren. Let me pitch whoever is out there Very and find new. more work. It was super New York-centric in, in those days. For many, many years, where you lived determined a lot of the kind of work you got. If you weren't in town, you just didn't exist. Well, it's you know, you could be if you were... You know, Russ Heath lived in Chicago for years, mm. but Russ Heath was Russ Heath. I was not Russ Heath. Um, if you weren't up in the offices, you weren't anywhere that you could actually interact with the editors. I was in the offices, but I was just a production flunky. Um, so, so, uh, uh, so, yeah. You know, if I if I had it to, uh, to do all over again, um, I would well. I mentioned this to you a few weeks ago. One of the first things I would do is I would convince Scott to rent an apartment in Brooklyn. <laughs> the, we saw one apartment in Brooklyn. That particular one. The, the landlord at that apartment was shockingly racist. Um, I've always wondered, was that maybe Fred Trump? Could have been. He was, I, mean, no, I mean, this is not crazy. He was, he was renting apartments, I think, in um, that area at the time. Yeah, I don't, yeah, in the end, well, there was stuff. But, that, that's, but, yeah, but any, anyway, we wound up living in a tiny basement apartment in the Upper East side. Yeah, Upper East, yeah. And it was far too expensive for what we were earning. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, if we had been living someplace cheaper, uh, albeit yeah. with more of a commute, I would have been able to stay. Yeah. Um, so, so, uh, so that would be a mistake to fix. But, yeah. That's not really no, comics industry oriented. So, like, you're you're actually a really interesting industry watcher, um, and uh, like I when, we were, at, when we were looking when we were looking when we were looking at uh, manga, you know, we saw that oh my god, they have like fishing comics and you know like uh, uh, ninja comics, it's samurai comics rather. Um, they have uh, comics about romance. They have comics about golfing. You know, everything. And we really like that idea of like. Just like just basic meat and potatoes comics for no matter what you're interested in, mm -hmm. um, and and that idea of like really great genre comics, but just a whole lot of genres, kind of took over. And and like I've, I've just always been interested in like the, the way you see the industry, and like what kind of industry we had at the time, and how how it's changed over time. Also, I would love it if you'd share that that obs observation you made once that I think is brilliant that we had a very crucial choice to make, not we personally, but the industry, way, way back when, they, when paper costs were going up, and they made that choice to start cutting pages instead of raising well, the price. Okay, this isn't a you know, career anecdote, but this is comics history. Um, I think, you know, we were looking at a comics industry, things have changed since, but we were looking at a comics industry where comics were huge in France and other parts of Europe, yeah. they were still quite successful, and they were huge in Japan. And what they were, in terms of their actual format, was they were thick anthologies with lots of stories, much like comics were when they during the 40s in the United States, when they were huge here, too. Um, uh, Captain America comics in the early 40s outsold Time magazine. And 
when the war ended and we had paper shortages, comic book publishers started saying, well, we'll use less paper and we'll keep the price down for the kids if we make the magazines a little shorter. So comics went from 64, 80 pages to 52 big pages, don't take less, to 48 pages to, and, and eventually down to 32 pages. And after they were 32 pages for a while and costs continued to increase, they couldn't keep the price at a dime anymore, so comics started going up in price to 12 cents, 15 cents, 20 cents, 25 cents, and here we are today. Um, but Time Magazine didn't do that. Yeah. Time Magazine just went up in price from 10 cents to 12 or 15 cents or whatever it did. So what happened to comics was that comics all of a sudden were less profitable. If you had an issue of Time Magazine on your newsstand rack and you had an issue of Captain America on your newsstand rack, Time Magazine was the one that was going to make you more money. When they made you the same money, Captain America outsold Time. At the point where they stop making you the same amount of money, that newsstand dealer is going to value the other magazines more than comics. And that's why I see that spinner rack, that Hey Kids Comics spinner rack, as the first sign of the ghettoization of comics. And that's the first way we encountered it, too, was at our local convenience store. On that, on that spinner rack. But that was the, take these damn comics and put them in the corner. Yeah. Get them away from my magazine rack, where the magazines cost more and bring in more profit. They're not worth that space anymore. Put them in the corner. And then around the time that we started buying comics, video games started being popular and you know, not on your computer, but in a standalone console at the drugstore or at the bowling alley or whatever. And they made more money. Nobody shoplifted them. <laughs> Big heavy. Um, uh, they didn't have to be restocked every week. Um, so those spinner racks started disappearing in favor of video games and other things like that. Um, so comics slowly, slowly, slowly moved out of the place where they had been successful in the first place. Um, and we saw the rise of the direct market, but what, you know, the metaphor I used back at the time was we didn't seem to understand that the direct market where comics are sold to specialty stores on a non-returnable basis, so the comics company's profits are guaranteed, and the comic book retailer is the one who bears the risk of whether he can actually sell those copies or not. It's economically more efficient, but it's not a great way to reach out to new readers. It's, it's like, you know, if you're a department store and you sell socks, among many other things, people will say, oh look, socks, I need socks, and they'll buy socks. If you're a drugstore and you have comics, people will say, oh look, comics, who's that guy? He's punching that person, that might be fun. Um, but if you have a store called Just Socks, then people aren't going to even come in unless they already know they need socks. Yeah. If you have a store that's Just Comics, then people who already like comics, like me, are going to go in there, but people who don't know that they might like comics, like, you know, Scott when he was 12, wouldn't even think to go in and look. So it's a great, efficient way to sell comics to the already converted. Yeah. 
And as such, my comparison was, we thought we discovered an entire new continent, and what we discovered was a lifeboat. Because eventually lifeboats run out. <laughs> you know, you, you, you can't survive forever in a lifeboat. Um, and we saw audiences drop and drop and drop, and audiences didn't start to really rise again. We got better and better at selling more comics to fewer people. You know, sometimes we'd sell five, six, seven copies of the same comic to, different, to, to those same people, which made it harder for them to buy other comics. Oh, Paul H. Okay. <laughs> uh, and, and same to you, buddy. Um, uh, and and uh, so it wasn't until we started seeing trade paperbacks go into bookstores and digital comics and things like that that could reach out well to new readers. <laughs> the voice of God, yeah. <laughs> doom, doom comes. Anyway. Yeah, I think we're going to transition to questions, but I, I just wanted to ask you to, um, you brought up something that made me think of it, but then the world exploded and I forgot. But um, uh, before we do that, one thing that might be on some of your, your minds as well, but I'm going to go ahead and ask it anyway. Well, while he's asking this, yeah. since it may take him a while to ask this, <laughs> um, we have microphones oh, there yeah. and there. So if you have questions, please have questions. Line up at the microphones and we will call you. And you can be lining up while he finishes his question. <laughs> um, so recent, some of, I'm sure a lot of you uh, have been keeping up with the... Um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and since you did, you were one of those names that showed up towards the end of uh, Spider-Man: Far From Home, um, and I think at least one other, one or two others. Uh, Age of Ultron. Age of Ultron. Uh, would you like to just share with us, like, what what piece of your creative oeuvre, you know, got you a, a slice of that credit? Well, in Spider-Man: Far From Home, the uh, movie opens with them talking about the, you know, the the, the blip, um, yeah. and and it turns out that it's Betty Brant and this other kid Jason Ianello doing a school broadcast thing. Um, I co-created Jason Ianello in Untold Tales of Spider-Man, so <laughs> that's. I mean, I, I watching the movie, I was thinking, oh, that might be it. That might be why they gave me a thank you. And as the movie went on, I went, this is the plot to Thunderbolts. <laughs> is, is, is that maybe it? And I actually ran into Kevin Feige after the premiere and I asked him and he said, no, we didn't, at least we didn't intend to do that. <laughs> um, so it was, it was Jason. But Age of Ultron is based on the uh, Ultron Unlimited four-issue uh, yeah. story I did with, with George. But I've also had things like Stark Tower in the first Avengers movie, I made it up. Um, see, he, I just figured that Tony Stark was a was a was a rich industrialist, and if Donald Trump could have a tower, Tony Stark could have a tower. Um, and that's where Stark Tower, later Avengers Tower, came from. And things like uh, when um, in the in the first Avengers, when Tony gets thrown out the window. Mm -hmm. And he has his watch and his ID bracelet, and they call the armor pod to him, and it forms around him. The watch and the ID bracelet were a Len Wein creation from back in the 70s, but that flying armor pod that folds around him was mine. Cool. Um, I also, you know, I was the guy who 
decided after years of not being there, hey, uh, Happy Hogan and Pepper Potts would be good supporting characters for Iron Man again. <laughs> um, and I argued, vociferously managed to argue Bob Harris into letting Tony Stark have a goatee. So I think I controlled Robert Downey Jr.'s facial hair. <laughs> All right, why don't we do some Q&A. We'll just bop back and forth, starting on the left. Hi, uh, thank you. Uh, I hadn't read comics for about a year or so until I heard about this incredible twist in Thunderbolt for the old Masters of Evil, so I have heard you to either thank or blame for the exact comics. Well, um, welcome, and I apologize. <laughs> my question is, will we be seeing any more Aerosmith or Autumn? Um, uh, Uh, Carlos Pacheco is finishing up the first issue of the next Aerosmith series. Um, uh, he has plot for the second issue, um, so we're moving on that. Um, I, it's going to take a little while before we're ready to uh, publish it because we want to make sure we can get six issues out in a row monthly before we solicit the first issue. But it's a 12-issue story, um, so twice as much Aerosmith as you've gotten before. Um, uh, Autumn Lands, we have uh, about 40 pages of material in the drawer, um, and uh, you know, it fell off a cliff kind of because I got sick and uh, was not able to keep up with any sort of real deadlines. Um, and uh, uh, Ben is currently working on other stuff like um, uh, Beasts of Burden and um, Uh, he's doing actually a secret project for me that I can't announce just yet. But when time and health permit, there will be more autumn lands as well. Awesome. So the answer to your question is yes, or to put it a long way, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes sir. I'm curious when you went to Kinokuniya Bookstore, what manga did you pick and how did you pick them? Ah. We well, Scott varied his purchases more than I did. I, you, yeah. I remember you bought Rose of Versailles yeah. and various other things. There was, a, um, uh, there was a series called Father and Son. Yep. And I ended up with, I don't know, nine or ten different volumes of Father and Son. It was a police comic. Um, it was called Father and Son because at this particular police precinct, um, the... Son, the tall, good-looking, speed racer type character, um, was a, a, a newly minted detective on the squad. And his father, who was one of those three heads tall, shovel mouth, rah, 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 rah guys, um, <laughs> was also on the squad. Uh, and there were, there were a bunch of other, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a, uh, an interesting mix of personalities. And they'd hunt serial killers and, and truck hijackers and things like that in a city that as far as I can tell um, had Big Ben, the Eiffel Tower and the Empire State Building in yep. it. Um, uh, and later on there was an episode where they investigated a crime on the set of the TV series adapting the manga. <laughs> <laughs> and it was Well, first of all, we didn't even know what it was called. I think we found out years later that it was called Father and Son. And, um, and it was great. And the, the, the storytelling was extraordinarily good. And that's, I, that's where I first learned a lot of the, the different tricks, the ways that they told stories in, in Japan that were very different. And I would go into DC production where I, where I worked, 
I would hold it up to editors and say, look, look what they're doing. Then we should be doing this. And they're like, oh, Scott, you know, nobody in America would ever like that kind of storytelling. <laughs> um, so I, I want some publisher, any publisher, yeah. to translate Father and it Son. It was a great comic. It truly was, yeah. We, we sometimes, didn't we call it Shonen Street Blues sometimes, yeah. <laughs> it was a Shonen Sunday comic. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so, yes, Shonen Street Blues was, okay. <laughs> Auspicious sounds. Um, I was just curious to that. I know that in past interviews, what I've seen that you said that your favorite thing was Hawkeye. Yes. Who's your second It's, I'm always baffled when I'm asked this question because, not specifically that question, but almost any what's your favorite question, because I don't really do favorites unless, like, Hawkeye just stands out. Oh, he's my favorite. But second favorite, I could pick Iron Man easily. I could pick Captain America. I could pick the Scarlet Witch. She is great. Um, you know that that there are uh, there are a bunch of characters. Normally, if I like things, I just I like them, and and I don't need to rank them. So Hawkeye just sort of naturally stands out as just I really respond to that character. Um, the other characters. There are Avengers I like. There are Avengers I like a lot. There are Avengers I don't like so much. But I, I couldn't really put them in order. I have a hunch, though, that you have a favorite villain. Avengers villain? No, just villain. Of, in all of comics. I'll well, bet you could pick one. It used to be Magneto. Yeah. We but were obsessed with Magneto in high school. I, I, I started one day in the lunchroom, I tried to anagram Magneto Lives, which was sort of our, our watch phrase or whatever, and I couldn't come up with anything. Kurt came up with nearly 100 anagrams for Magneto Lives, including... Steaming love. I mangle votes. Uh, you slime on TV. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I think there was I'm a stove, Glenn. Yeah. Um. We'd write it on the blackboard, and I would draw a little magneto. Nobody, a lot of people had no idea who it was that kept doing that. We put up a new, new anagram every day. Yeah. It was really stupid. It was a weird How much time do we have left? <laughs> three hours. Um, oh, it's 3.43, so we've oh, got yeah. no, seven no. minutes. Yeah, thereabouts. I will try to give it fast because, you know, I want to get through everybody. Um, uh, I was fascinated by uh, the, the idea of what it would be like to be in a world like that. From the time I was a teenager and reading comics, I wouldn't go down the street thinking what it would be like to be Spider-Man. I'd walk down the street going, wouldn't it be cool to see Spider-Man, you know, bouncing over those telephone poles? Yeah. Wouldn't it be cool if, like, Iron Man was rocketing up the street and the, 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 the uh, windows were, 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 you know, store windows were shaking? Um, you know, one of my sisters had a, a poster of David Cassidy on her wall. Um, if you were in the Marvel Universe, who would that poster be of? It wouldn't be Captain America because he's too goody-goody. It wouldn't be Spider-Man because he's scary. It would be Johnny Storm. And I would think about what 
else happened in the world, and I wanted to write stuff like that. And I got to write a couple of things for Marvel like that, and then I did Marvels. And I thought about doing a follow-up to Marvels that would be like Marvels as an ongoing series where we get to see, you know, sort of like Astro City, but in the Marvel Universe, where we shift, you know, we, we, we see different historical events, but we see them through human eyes. Um, and I realized that it would be a, an insane editorial hassle um, uh, trying to do that on a monthly basis. And I thought, if I made up all the characters myself, if I did this as my own book, um, I had done a superhero series called The Liberty Project uh, years earlier, and it had died hard. Um, but this was, this was a point where uh, Image and Valiant had kind of broken Marvel's stranglehold, Marvel and DC's stranglehold on the superhero audience. So I thought maybe, maybe it could work. If I could do, you know, 10 or 12 issues of it, uh, that would be fun. So I put together Astro City, and we're still going today. <laughs> so, so that was where it came from. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Zayat, my name is CJ, and I'm a huge fan of your work. You actually inspired me to become a comic book writer. I'm very, very sorry. <laughs> uh, my question is this. You wrote JLA Avengers, which was illustrated by George Perez. Is there any sequence from that that really stood out to you that you knew you had to do since, you know, it was DC and Marvel crossing together? I just, I mean, honestly, I knew from going in, I mean, I, 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 I even told this gag in Wizard Magazine years earlier that I wanted Hawkeye to see the Justice League and go, oh, it's a bunch of Squadron Supreme wannabes. <laughs> <laughs> because he would. I've seen characters look like that before. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> Um, there are some business discussions going on um, that, you know, currently the status of it is it's in the works, um, but uh, even before Vertigo closed down, um, uh, w there were some business issues uh, like contract stuff and that that we had to figure out. Um, and Brent and I are, are at the moment working on a secret project I can't announce um, that if you like Astro City, I expect you will like a lot, but it is not a superhero project. Um, uh, and those business issues will be resolved soon, and uh, then we'll be able to much better know uh, what and how and all. But uh, it's not so much changing my writing style as the pacing of it, you know, doing a 160-page story is different from doing eight 20-page comics. Um, uh, so I, I, that's the best answer I can give you at the moment. Thank you. Sure. With all the uh, different superhero work you've done, how has that made it easier or harder to keep going on in Ashley City? Like, can you go back to Hawkeye or Avengers or Justice League, or you're like, oh, gosh, I did this in Ashley City, or I want to do this and I want to steal it, but Astro City is a different kind of stories. Uh, Astro City is very much about what else uh, happens in a superhero universe. If I'm writing Avengers, that's about the main thing. So the stories I would tell in Avengers are the stories I wouldn't tell in Astro City and vice versa. 
Um, so I've never really had a, a, a problem um, uh, figuring out, you know, also if I have a great idea for a, uh, a, a, a prankster story, let's say, at DC, um, I could make up a character in Astro City that could do that sort of thing, but if what I like about it is the prankster and Superman, then why don't I use them and do it there? Um, it's not like I run out of, you know, uh, ideas for stories are not in short supply, at least not for me, not yet. Yeah. <laughs> okay. He said one more question while you were asking, so I'm going to just say we'll get the last Let's guy. Let's do it. Um, yeah, I got hooked on Avengers stories basically from your one. So when I saw the movie Avengers uh, Age of Ultron, I was amazed that they basically kind of used your story. What would you like to change? What would you have liked to change in it? In, in Avengers: Age of Ultron, yeah. I would have liked to have Thor have just enough of a slightly archaic speech pattern, so he could have said Ultron. We would have words with the. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay. Thank you very much, Kurt. Thank you, all of you, and have a great time.